You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. you've got your Bibles with you, you can open up to John chapter 2 after a long stretch. We've made it through John chapter 1 and we're now into the second chapter. And Father, we just ask this morning as we open up your word that uh, you would speak to us through it, Lord, that you would reveal Jesus Christ through your word to us this morning, that, uh, that you would show us the things that we need to learn, to understand, uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Thank you, Lord. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to teach us this morning. Amen. <clears throat> so we've just completed working our way through the first chapter of John's Gospel. And uh, you recall I pointed out a number of times that John was very clear about his purpose for writing the Gospel. When he says in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we get to chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth and the first of those signs that John mentions. seems that Jesus has just had a pretty busy week leading up to this time. He gets baptised one day and then the next day, it says in verse 29, John the Baptist points him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 35, the next day, the first two disciples, Andrew and John, join him, and Andrew brings his brother Peter along. Then the next day, verse 43, Jesus decides to head to Galilee, where he finds Philip, who fetches Nathanael to join them. In the space of four days, Jesus has gone from being a complete unknown to having a core group of followers. Then we move into chapter 2. So I've got chapter 2, open in your Bibles. On the third day, Jesus turns up at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Presumably by the third day, uh, John means the third day after Philip and Nathaniel joined him, which makes it the seventh day of Jesus' budding ministry. A wedding feast on the seventh day may or may not have some spiritual significance. I'll leave that up to you to think about and decide. But John 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did a kinder in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Typically in John's Gospel, <clears throat> there are some cryptic comments and verses in there. It's a straightforward enough account of a wedding, but uh, there are a few things in there that might leave you scratching your head. We might best start with a bit of background to weddings in ancient culture, for there are, they are a little different to the way we conduct things in Western society. A wedding in that culture and time was a week-long event. Nowadays, of course, they save up their thirty, forty, sixty thousand dollars and hit it in one afternoon, have a monster of a of a wedding reception, invite everyone they've ever met, and uh, spend sixty thousand dollars a deposit on their house on one afternoon of a wedding where they're so stressed out they can't enjoy it. In those days, it was a week-long event. In fact, the first wedding referred to in Scripture is none other than our old friend Jacob. Jacob the con man, you'll recall from, uh, I think it was last week, we talked about him. And Jacob tried to marry Rachel and got Leah instead. So in weddings in those days, the young couple would be dressed in fine clothes for the event, for the whole event. They'd be dressed up like royalty. The bride's new husband would not get to see her face for the bride wore a veil through the whole event and it wasn't until she was escorted to the bridal chamber by her parents on her, for her first night with her husband that that veil came off. There's so much imagery in the Old Testament uh, style in ancient culture weddings. Um, I might talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. I'm thinking of uh, preaching on the marriage supper of the Lamb and some of the imagery from then is very relevant to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But uh, the fact that the, the bride wore a veil until she was escorted into the bridal chamber to meet her husband face to face for the first time might explain why Uncle Laban was able to sleep, slip Leah into the marriage bed instead of Rachel and uh, con Jacob, give him a bit of his uh, just desserts, you might say. <clears throat> so the wedding celebration was a party thrown for all the relatives and possibly for the whole town, probably depending on the size of the town. And it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to ensure that the food and drink didn't run out. <clears throat> to run out before the end of the feast would bring great shame on the family. It would affect their standing in the community for years and maybe generations to come. So the run out of wine before the end of a week-long celebration was more than just awkward and embarrassing. It was offensive to the guests. <clears throat> to make the disgrace worse, there would have been a financial penalty as well. For the groom had a legal responsibility to provide adequate food and drink for the whole celebration. So this might explain Mary's concern that the wine had run out. <clears throat> I wonder though, did Mary have any inkling of, of the power that Jesus had over all creation? We don't really know. The Bible never tells us just how much she understood about his power. We certainly know, she certainly knew that he was supernaturally conceived. And she knew the prophetic words that were spoken over her and to her about who her son would become. 
he would be mighty. He would rule over an everlasting kingdom. He would be saviour, messiah and king of Israel. But how much of that did Mary remember 30 years down the track? Who knows, for at one stage, during Jesus' ministry, she came with her other sons to take him away because she thought he'd gone out of his mind. Mark 3.21, if you're taking notes on that. Anyway, when Mary told Jesus they have no wine, it may have been less a command to do something and more a simple comment like, "Uh uh-oh, they've run out of wine, that's not good. Some people have suggested that Mary may have been involved in the catering somehow and so possibly she was suggesting to Jesus, we better do something about this, can you go out and get some wine? No idea, we don't know, but there's some conjecture about that. Bible scholars have argued for centuries about what this actually means when Mary says they have no wine. For at least one major denomination, it's evidence that Jesus obediently does what his mother asks him to do. And therefore it's fitting and appropriate to go through Mary first if you have a need to get to Jesus. While I can't be any more sure than anyone else about exactly what this conversation means, one thing I am certain of though, it's not teaching that we can or should go through Mary to get to Jesus. Jesus' response to Mary seems equally cryptic to the casual eye. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now we could read that and think that Jesus was actually rebuking Mary when he says woman. That sounds a fairly harsh way to speak to her. But he wasn't responding with annoyance or criticism when he called her woman. It was a common term of endearment in that age. You'll recall when Jesus was on the cross, he put her in the care of his disciple John and said to her, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. And John took her into his care from then on. So I doubt that Jesus was actually having a bit of a shot at Mary, a dig at her. What does this have to do with me? Jesus asked her. Again, it's probably not a rebuke to her, but just an acknowledgement, I think, that what concerns him is not the same as what concerns her. He had his own plans and purposes and goals to pursue in his own time and in his own way. So I don't think we should read too much into the interchange. I suspect it merely indicates a change in the relationship between Mary as his mother and Jesus as the son. Now Jesus is hinting at his new role as Messiah, as Saviour. And Mary accepts the change without argument, without complaint and without clinging to the past. But what about... My hour has not yet come. What does Jesus mean by that? If we have a look elsewhere at how Jesus used that term, my hour or the hour, we might get a few clues. In John 7, Jesus proclaimed as he taught at the temple, You know me and you know where I came from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And in Mark 14, it tells us, He took Peter and James and John with him, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And a little further on in Mark, again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came, to the, came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And finally, John 12. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. We know that Jesus marched to the beat of a different drummer, so to speak. He wasn't governed by people's demands and their desires. In fact, he himself said, I only do what I see my Father in heaven do. Jesus' timetable was not the same as the timetable of those around him. So I suspect that Jesus was concerned that he not get pushed into starting his ministry too soon because he knew that once he started preaching and performing miracles publicly, the end would not be far away. For some people would try to forcibly install him as king, others would seek to kill him. Anyway, Jesus instructed the servants to fill the stone water pots that were there. These pots were filled with water for the purpose of purification. Each pot contained somewhere around a hundred litres of water. Devout Jews would wash themselves in that water pot and wash themselves frequently to ensure that they were ritually pure. They would wash not so much to wash off the dirt of the day, although it would have that effect, but they would wash off the contamination of sin and of the ungodly society around them. I can imagine that after several days of uh, wedding feast, the water in these purification pots wouldn't have been so pure anymore. So when Jesus turned that dirty water into the best wine, he was giving us a picture of new creation. A picture of how he would take the filth and the dirt of our lives lived in rebellion and sin and not only cleanse it but make us clean and make us new therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old things have passed away the new has come there's no way that anyone would have drunk that wine if they knew where it had come from out of that filthy water pot they were used for washing, not for drinking. I suspect if the MC of the wedding 
had have realised that the water had come out of those pots, he would have tipped it out rather than drink it. But nothing in us is so dirty, is so filthy, is so contaminated that Christ can't wash it clean and make it new. And you know what? We don't know how that new life comes about. All we know is that the Holy Spirit does a secret work inside us. He changes our filthy hearts into clean, pure hearts. We see the dirt of our previous life. We see the freshness of new creation. And we can taste the difference that Christ has made to us. How it actually happens is shrouded in mystery, just like the new wine in this story. When the Lord changes our hearts, he fills us up to the brim with new wine. The Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You notice Jesus doesn't do this miracle to attract attention to himself. Quite the opposite. He does it quietly. He does it even reluctantly. He does it in the background. Only the servants and his disciples knew what had happened. Not even the MC of the wedding had any idea. He thought the bridegroom had been keeping the best wine until the last, maybe hoping that everyone, the wedding feast would be over and he'd get to keep it for himself for the future. But while Jesus may have done it in the background, he did it to meet an immediate need and to save a family from shame. And when he did that, he not only showed his love, he showed his power over all creation. Remember, John tells us later that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's just one more part of John's evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, eternal God and perfect man. At the initial creation of the universe, Jesus Christ, the Word, spoke everything into being. Here he creates new wine without even uttering a word. Just by the mere power of his will, he creates something new. What a mighty God we serve. He doesn't even need to speak to create. John records that this miracle, this sign, manifested Jesus' glory and caused the disciples to believe in him. In the first chapter, John told us that the word became flesh and dwelt among men and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't just come as a man, as a human being, he dwelt among us. He lived among the common people. He lived among the misfits. He lived among the dregs of society. And he demonstrated his grace on a daily basis starting with this backroom miracle to save another person from public humiliation. He demonstrated it with major miracles like healing lepers, casting out demons, raising the dead. All of them flowed out of his abundance of grace. And he embodied truth when he lived among us. Without ever being stained by sin, he lived among sinful humanity. There's no justification anywhere in scripture for withdrawing from the world into a monastic existence 
in an attempt to avoid being stained by sin. For if that's your inclination, I've got bad news for you. You are already in sin. You're too late. Withdrawing will not help you. You are already stained by the sin that you live in and among. Your hope then lies only in this man who can turn your dirty water pot into fresh wine. Right here in the life you live today, in the society you live in, in the world that you live in, he can wash away that stain of sin and create fresh new wine. On a side note, there's been arguments for centuries about whether Jesus turned the water into alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine. I think you're grasping at straws to suggest that it was non-alcoholic. Um, I can't see it personally. In the culture of the time, it almost certainly would have been alcoholic wine, if only because the water sometimes was not safe to drink. Um, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. Fermentation kills bugs. And the way the word oinos is the Greek, from which we get wine, the way it's used elsewhere in the New Testament implies the ability to get drunk on the wine and also contains warnings about getting drunk on it. And you might recall that Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard. There are many good and valid reasons why a person may choose to avoid alcohol, but this passage will give you no support for that choice. To insist that Christians must abstain from alcohol is legalism. It's entirely a matter of conscience and of wisdom and of concern for the weaker brother. That's something we also need to be in mind of. You should know your own body and your own weaknesses well enough to know whether alcohol will be a trap to you. Jesus' hour may not have come at the wedding in Cana, but it followed only a few short years afterwards. There's another hour still to come that we need to be ready for. John 5 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. In Revelation it tells us, He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. 
for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. There is an hour of judgment coming. An hour of reaping where some will go to eternal joy and peace in his presence but others will be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath to be trodden down like grapes until their blood flows as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of nearly 300 kilometres, it tells us in Revelation. There's a day coming, a day of judgment for some, a day of salvation for others. What does that day hold in store for you? Will you be trodden down in the winepress of God's wrath, facing the fury of his judgment and the eternal punishment it brings? If it describes you, if that describes you, I call on you now to repent of your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. He will turn the dirty water in your pot into the best wine. If you've already trusted in Christ, then that final day will be a wedding feast like no other. Remember Jesus saying at the Last Supper, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a wedding supper of the Lamb still to come for those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. It will be a day of great joy, a day of great celebration, and it will be a great feast. God willing, I'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to make all things new. We turn to him to cleanse us of all our sin and to renew our hearts. We pray the words of David, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, it's only the cleansing and renewing work of Jesus Christ applied to us by your Holy Spirit, which gives us any cause for joy and for hope. And we receive that today, Lord, with eternal gratitude to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.